Hello, and welcome to Gleebooks Author Talks. We've partnered with 2SER to bring you a live recording of our events, held in one of Sydney's oldest independent bookshops. So now it is my pleasure to introduce to you Brian Tui, whose book Secret, The Making of the Australian State, we are celebrating tonight. Brian, a Walkley Award-winning journalist who has written extensively about national security policy since 1973. He has written for the Australian Financial Review, the Sun-Herald, the Nikki Asia Review, was the editor of the National Times and a Canberra and Washington correspondent for the Australian Financial Review and is the author of several books. Um, unfortunately, Brian will not be available for selfies after the event, <laughs> just so everyone knows. <laughs> um, tonight, he will be in conversation with John Lyons. Um, you might recognise John from his live tweets of the recent AFP raids on the ABC, which led to more than 9.6 million retweets or from his role as head investigative journalist at the ABC. He is the author of best-selling Balcony Over Jerusalem and has won three Walkleys and has been named the Graham Perkin Australian Journalist of the Year. Um, we're thrilled to have them both here with us tonight, so please join me in welcoming Brian and John. Thank you, Ruby, and welcome, everybody. For several decades, Brian Tui has revealed or been the editor who's published more genuine investigative journalism than, than virtually any other journalist or editor. As a result of his journalism over that time, Australians know much more about how this country really works, not just in the national security area, but many other policy areas as well. Brian entered journalism at the Financial Review in 1973 during the Whitlam government. Brian's never been one to go with the flow. At the time, there were, I think, five financial review journalists went and joined the Whitlam government. Uh, Brian actually left the Whitlam government and joined the Financial Review. Um, it was under Brian's leadership that the National Times was at its height. Uh, in my view, it was the best newspaper we've seen in this country. Uh, before or since. Week after week it took on corrupt police officers, corrupt police forces, exposed many of the country's dark uh, and you know dark secrets, defence, intelligence and others. Uh, that golden period over which uh, Brian um, was in charge included some of the greats of Australian journalism, Adele Horan, David Marr um, and some are here tonight as well, Wendy Bacon, Marion Wilkinson, Colleen Ryan. It was an absolute tour de force of journalism. Among many other things, uh, Brian has written, you know, he's written many books, but two in particular um, stand out. Oyster, the story of the Australian Secret Intelligence Service, that was with the late and great Bill Pinwell, and The Book of Leaks with Marion Wilkinson. He's covered many policy areas, uh, not just national security, and in recent years in particular, um, he's looked at a lot of economic policy issues for the Financial Review. Um, this book uh, is an extraordinary book um, and uh, it, it basically couldn't be more timely. Um, it reveals, essentially, it, it helps explain 
why Australia is where it is now, why there is so much power in the hands of some unelected people in Canberra in the intelligence and security services. And coincidentally, Scott Morrison's just announced about an hour ago that Mike Bazzullo, the head of the Home Affairs Department, who gets his own chapter in this book, has been reappointed. Um, as the Secretary of a Home Affairs Department. And so this is, if you really want to understand how this country works, this, this book explains it to you. And it explains why we're in a fairly sort of sad situation in terms of the power of the AFP and other agencies. So I'd like everybody to welcome Brian Tui. Brian, could we begin by um, you summing up essentially what, what the book's about? Well, a couple of themes which I'll quickly run through and then you obviously will ask me questions, including a third theme. Um, I'll start by just saying secret intelligence has never killed anyone when leaked to the Australian media. Keeping Australian intelligence secret when shared with overseas partners has killed very large numbers of people in the Middle East and elsewhere with drones attacks and just in, just in wars. Uh, increasingly, phony intelligence from the US is used as a propaganda tool. In the case of the fraudulent uh, weapons of mass destruction intelligence used to justify the invasion of Iraq, the head of the British secret intelligence, uh, Sir Richard Dearlove, uh, belled the cat when he told the UK cabinet members that the intelligence was being fitted around the policy. In other words, fitted around the policy to invade. Before that, ridiculous US intelligence claimed that uh, the Soviet Union was uh, dropping chemical weapons in Cambodia. A geoscientist, Rob Barton, showed that it was merely bees defecating en masse after eating yellow pollen. Later, uh, they approached the then Prime Minister, Malcolm Fraser, to get him sacked, basically. Fraser said he had full confidence in his intelligence scientists. Uh, later, the US falsely claimed, and very pe few people realised this, that Syria did not use, sorry, it, it claimed that it used sarin agent, the nerve agent. It didn't. And uh, that's found by the organisation that has the job of sorting these things out. Uh, decisions taken in secrecy suffer from a lack of outside scrutiny. In 1995, a deputy ASIO head, Gerard Walsh, made sensational claims in public about people being killed because of the disclosure of intelligence secrets. The Labor Attorney General at the time, Michael Lavache, checked with Walsh. Uh, he was unable to give any evidence to back this claim up, so uh, the Attorney General announced that the claims were not correct and issued a correction himself. The correction prompts the obvious question of how many glaring errors senior uh, ASIO officials make uh, but the ones which are kept secret. Uh, these days, secrecy is also used by the intelligence agencies to cover up abuses of power, uh, about uh, other m misbehaviour. The churches use secrecy to conceal uh, child sex abuse. Corporations conceal harmful effects of, of tobacco, pesticides, pharmaceuticals, tax avoidance and so on by using secrecy. Now, secrecy can have a seductive power that traps even the best and the brightest. The ANU strategic scholar Des Ball, and a friend of mine, fell for nonsense peddled by the US in secret briefings. He claimed that Pine Gap was crucial to verifying arms control agreements. It wasn't. Verifying these treaties required the number of missiles and warheads to be counted. 
uh, a job that can best perform by photo reconnaissance, satellites, which are not linked to Pine Gap. Labor's defence minister at the time, Kim Beasley, made the absurd claim that arms control could never have occurred without the presence in Australia of Pine Gap and another base called Narunga. Narunga had nothing remotely to do with arms control and he was simply peddling nonsense about Pine Gap. Nonsense that was very convenient because it helped uh, Labor uh, claim that it was a benign, Pine Gap had a benign role. In fact, what Pine Gap does is it is the, by far the biggest ever global surveillance system ever put in place. And secondly, it is deeply, deeply involved in war fighting uh, on behalf of the US by supplying them with real-time uh, information about targeting. Um, it's, uh, I think I'll just throw this away, it might help. And, uh, <laughs> um, how about that? And this page two, uh, or not read it. Um, three, well, three very well-placed Australian recipients of highly classified intelligence described it as of little or no value. The three were Malcolm Fraser, uh, Gareth Evans and Alan Wrigley, who was a very deputy defence head and later head at ASIO. These days, to my dismay, journalists and many others give reverential treatment to intelligence and dismiss scepticism as sacrilegious. In late breaking news in the New York Times today, the chairman of the Chinese high-tech company Huawei has offered to uh, let a licence its entire 5G technology to a US company and let it modify it in any way. That's uh, the Australian National, the Australian S Signals Directorate has boasted that it was the first to wake up to what a terrible threat Huawei was. Uh, now that act offering to license the technology to the US company, that's not the act of someone who lets the Chinese government tell it to spy on the US. Um, I'll just move on to the second section, which is about uh, what to do about a, about a bellicose ally. According to the Congressional Research Service, the US used force overseas 160, not, sorry, 160 times since 1991. That's vastly more than Russia, let alone China. Uh, and the, the US scholar, Don Levin, calculated that the US intervened in 81 elections abroad between 1946 and 2000, double the number he estimates for the Soviet Union and Russia. The Assistant Secretary of State, Victoria, Victoria Newland, told Congress that she paid, or the government paid, 100, US do, 100 million US dollars uh, in 2014 to undermine Putin. Russia spent about a million, as far as I know, intervening in the 2016 US election. Um, and then she explained in another forum that the US had given $5 billion, that's $5 billion to Ukraine uh, to, to get an anti-Russian government up. This was over several years. Uh, it managed to do so in 2014, but the country remains a basket case. Uh, the US overthrew governments in Iran, Congo, Chile, among others. It assassinated leaders, including its hand-picked uh, uh, leader in Vietnam, Diem, and his brother. Uh, it tried to do the same with uh, assassinating people like Fidel Castro. Um, I give examples in the book of US influence in Australia, uh, which is in 
it's can, it can be found there. One of the people that gave me the information is John Walker, the former head of, of the uh, CIA in Australia, the station chief, as they call it, during the Whitlam years. Um, I want to just quickly explain that ANSYS is not an insurance policy. Pragmatic Australian politicians still have trouble grasping that US presidents will do what is in their own political interest and some vague definition of the American national interest. An example of this is that after Kennedy rejected Menzies' request in 1963 to send troops to help Australia in its war with Borneo, at its war in Borneo against Indonesia. The Foreign Minister Garfield Barwick then wrote a wonderful minute to his department saying, top secret, saying, we must never again try to discuss the treaty's meaning because it is almost certain to narrow the meaning. Uh, Australia is also an aggressive country, not just the US. It sent forces to 13 wars, only one entailed potential, a potential threat to Australia. We supported the US in particularly barbaric war in, in Korea where it used napalm, napalm and conventional bombs to destroy every city, town and village in the entire country. Australian Mustang fighters also dropped napalm on people and buildings. Even a sickened General, even General Douglas MacArthur was sickened, not normally a sort of squeamish pacifist. He said that the US was perpetrating a slaughter such of which, the, of which I have never heard of in the history of mankind. Uh, now that was just one war, Vietnam, I'll just very briefly say a summary in two sentences. Uh, an international conference had been agreed in 1954 that, uh, for an election to unify the North and the South. That was in, and by the end of 1956 that had to take place. However, the US intervened to prevent the election, which it acknowledged Ho Chi Minh would have won had it been held. But had it been held, there would have been no more war, no horrendous death toll, no napalm, no dioxin, no dioxin deformities, just peace. While VM, while, sorry, PM, Julia Gillard supported all 13 wars, including those such as Vietnam and Iraq, that Labor, to its credit, had opposed. Uh, earlier opposed, she backed them all. She backed all of the... Uh, the uh, colonial wars as well, including some of the most nauseating ones. Now, John, you were going to ask me about uh, the attack on core liberties. <laughs> sure. Um, I can't remember uh, a first paragraph of a book as powerful as the first paragraph of, of this book. Um, let me just read it to you. Uh, the great thing about, one of the many great things about Brian is that he, he sort of gets straight to the point in terms of his journalism. Um, this is the first paragraph of the book. Step by step, a succession of new laws and policies have provided the building blocks for Australia to become a country in which secretive officials and ministers wield unprecedented levels of peacetime power. Secrecy, ignorance and fear are being used to deprive Australians of basic liberty and increase the risk of being dragged into a devastating war that could escalate into a full-scale nuclear catastrophe. Uh, what war and what nuclear catastrophe? The war most on offer at the moment is one with China. And uh, a lot of people are, are pushing hard. What they're doing is pushing for a war with China. The US, sorry, is preparing for it. And so are we. Our forces are now completely integrated 
with the US and all the planning is going ahead with the US. Doesn't so mean it'll happen, but it's very hard once you get this momentum going to stop it. So do you think that Australian military planners right now are actively planning yes. for a war with China? Yes, that's what they're for. Um, and, and that's what a lot of these exercises with the US are for. The, the chapter on China, by the way, I found absolutely riveting. Um, you write in that chapter, if war again erupts and Australian troops end up helping to invade China, they could be fed into the greatest human mincing machine the world has ever seen. Alternatively, uh, a full-scale nuclear war can't be ruled out. Um, I want to ask you a question. No Australian politician that I know of will even utter the words China and war together. How realistic is the possibility of a war with China? I think I don't think China wants one, and there would be some elements of the United States you know, administration who wouldn't want one, and there are others, one of whom got sacked last night, <laughs> who, who would desperately like a war with anyone, nuclear or otherwise. <laughs> he, thought, he thinks a nuclear war can be won. John Bolton. Yes, John Bolton. Look, China doesn't have many nuclear weapons at the moment, and it's a, it's a chance that a first strike could knock them all out by the United States. But I think surely they must be getting more nuclear weapons and there must therefore be a risk that uh, you know, a very severe exchange, nuclear exchange could occur. In the book, you analyse the United States' air-sea battle plan from the Pentagon. Mm. Um, you describe that battle plan saying that apart from a trade embargo, this is what the US would want Australia to be involved in. That would, that would devastate Australian exports. The plan includes deep missile strikes into China, guaranteeing that the conflict would escalate. How realistic is that scenario? I think the they've had to drop it. Uh, it was I, I got the, some of that from an American uh, naval officer who wrote in the American uh, in Naval Institute journal complete opposition to it, saying this is crazy. If you plan for war, we should be try You'll get one. And uh, I sent it to someone I knew in Admiral in the in uh, Canberra in the Australian Navy. And he, he asked me for a copy. I sent it to him and he emailed me back uh, on the system. Uh, anyone who's planning for a war with China is insane. <laughs> I thought that summed it up. <laughs> I mean, reading this book and, and what America's up to, I thought, you know, if we had a, an unstable and volatile president in the White House, we'd be in a lot of trouble right now. <laughs> he, he, he's the only stable one there at the moment in these things. He's, he doesn't appear to be a warmonger. I mean, I think what's happened here is... The United States has been in 160 wars, as I mentioned, since the end of the Cold War, and they had their ass kicked very badly by a bunch of medieval peasants with a, uh, some homemade bombs and crapped out AK-47s in, in Afghanistan. So they go, hang on, we, we've got easily the most powerful, well-advanced weapon systems in the world, so we might, get, might have a crack at China now. But uh, they've swung the other way, I think. In, in recent months, we've seen a series of raids by the AFP, mm -hmm. of course, um, the ABC and other places. Uh, and at the ABC, we've already uh, encountered the reality of would-be sources mm -hmm. of information. So-called whistleblowers have started pulling out of cooperation with us mm -hmm. for fear of um, being tracked down. And, of course... That means a poorer Australian public in terms of information. Mm. One of the uh, stories that prompted that raid in the News Corp papers was about the Australian Signals Directorate. Mm -hmm. You write about them extensively in the book, Our mm. Eavesdroppers. Could you explain how in recent years the Australian Signals Directorate has changed the way it operates? It has changed enormously. 
in the past, it's, it's always been a subsidiary of the National Security Agency in America. And uh, there's sort of young journalists here seem to get very excited that we're part of this wonderful Anglo-Saxon club called the Five Eyes Grouping. They don't seem to understand that the NSA shares signals intelligence, this is, with over 30 countries, particularly those who let them put bases there, alternatively those they want to uh, influence. But what, what a huge dip that ASD has taken now, and has announced, and it's got almost no publicity by its prudent, he's just leaving, I think, as head of it, Mike is, Burgess. yes, that they would engage from now on in, in offensive cyber. That's what he calls it. Whereas in all of its history, it's been passively eavesdropping, collecting signals. N now, the, pa the, the, the cyber, the offensive cyber, is that you attack computer <coughs> systems, you destroy them. Uh, you can, you can, you can, and, and certainly the US has designed, has got how to do this, and it's obviously handing it over to ASD. They can attack, turn off uh, uh, computer systems, no, completely destroy power systems. Uh, turn off uh, uh, water systems, etc., etc. Now that is an act of war. That is a huge thing to be doing. It is not passive intelligence gathering, which has been the prime role of uh, a, or the only role of ASD in the past. Do you think ASD right now is actively attacking various computer systems around the world? Well, I don't know how many, but he, he gave an example of one in in, in the Middle East, which was uh, about about a terrorism thing, right? And, and w but he's hiring, he said, hundreds of people to become hackers uh, and they, you know, they can wear jeans to work, that sort of stuff. Why do you think we've seen the, the uptick in the AFP raids three weeks after the return of the government? Why do you think we suddenly saw a flurry of raids? Well, in the case of the ABC one, it's, it's incredibly puzzling because it was, what, two and a half years since the stories were, were very, very good stories published on, online in the ABC, sorry, on, online in the ABC, and there is no way on earth they wrote national security. What they did was reveal that uh, allegedly some SAS and commandos working in Afghanistan had committed war crimes. Now, it is not in the public interest or the national interest or national security to mm. cover up war crimes and that's the effect of what this raid was trying to do and I, I would imagine very much that some senior very senior army officers would be very unhappy about that because they correctly have a good record in the past of obeying the, the rules of war and they don't want to be uh, have the idea that some of their troops are committing war crimes mm. and you Sorry. You yeah. deal in the book with uh, the case of Witness K, the mm -hmm. former ASIS officer who objected to ASIS secretly bugging mm -hmm. one of the poorest nations on earth, East mm -hmm. Timor, to gain a commercial advantage in negotiations. Um, my colleague Peter Cronow in Four Corners did a wonderful story on that about a week ago, and Marion and Peter mm -hmm. had done one a couple of years ago. Why is the case of Witness K, in your view, an important one? I can't do better than what the Four Corners did and Peter did. I, 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 just, um, I think it's enormously important, we, apart from the greed involved, we are now the largest exporter of natural gas in the world and we wanted to steal some from the tiniest and poorest new nation on earth. But the thing that I find appalling about this is uh, that they are holding a secret trial, as far as we know it's going to be secret. Uh, you know, if, if that was happening, you know, in Soviet Union, people would be enormously upset. But secondly, why are they being charged? It is just absolutely ruthless, and there's no no possible reason to charge them. Why do you think they're pursuing it, or Christian uh, Porter? 
well, Christian Porter doesn't have to. He, he, had, a, he had a, in the act, he could uh, not go ahead with this. Mm. And that's what his predecessor, coalition predecessor, George refused Francis. to do it. Yes. yes. So I'm, I'm, I just, obviously what happened was in the national interest to expose, dispose what we were doing. And apart from anything else, for all the crap we go on about the rules-based international order, we were breaking not only the rules against espionage, we were also um, endangering the lives of, of aid workers because they went in there, into, into that then was East Timor, uh, in the guise of aid workers. But equally, uh, they, we pulled out of all of the, uh, the jurisdictions which would allow East Timor to challenge mm. our, our, what we'd done. So we were hammering uh, China in the South China Sea, and we've, we've done worse. Uh, you deal extensively with Pine Gap. Mm -hmm. In reality, do Australians have a choice over whether Pine Gap is operational? Uh, yes, you would. Uh, it might be a little difficult. Um, I don't think the Americans have realised or, or that they haven't got much of a whiphold over us in terms of you know, silly things about, well, we'll cut off intelligence to you. Well, hang on. You get a lot of intelligence, not just from Pine Gap's uh, satellites in the air. What they have now do is listen in. A lot of these ground stations they've got at Pine Gap listen into commercial and other satellites, and they've got other bases in Australia, in Western Australia, in Darwin or near Darwin, etc., that do the same. So that they would be listening into hundreds and hundreds of satellites, of which can you can be, you know, in, this, in this part of the world, and that would mean whether you like it or not, they'd be picking up a huge number of phone calls, faxes, not faxes anymore, <laughs> the, the uh, uh, emails, etc., etc., et uh, from Australians. Does Pine Gap make Australia a, a target? Uh, well, it would. Well, Kim Beasley certainly th said it would, but he thought that was the price worth paying. Uh, uh, the then DIO, that, or GIO, pointed out that uh, 1.5 million Sydney siders would die if they got hit by one of the Soviet missiles. Uh, Des Ball, to my astonishment and dismay, because he's a friend of mine, argued that they were so important that it wouldn't matter if nuclear weapons were dropped on Australia, that was worth the damage done. Well, the, the damage was done during at the Maralinga test by the British was with much smaller, much smaller weapons. The Soviet Union would use very powerful weapons on Pine Gap, Northwest Cape, uh, Narunga, the base that no longer exists, in, in, that was in uh, South Australia. So in the event of a war between the US and China, would the Chinese try to destroy the Pine Gap? Well, uh, you would think they would. Um, the, the argument used to be they wouldn't want to, to uh, destroy, say, a communication station because it, it's in their interest that each side knows more or less what the other's doing. But I, it would have the advantage, uh, fortunately, stuff for the rest of Australia that uh, they wouldn't be killing so many people and they might have another uh, advantage that uh, the US would not would prefer here to be attacked rather than some city in the United States. You have a chapter as I said on, on Mike Pizzullo mm -hmm. um, as the man who runs the national security juggernaut, mm -hmm. uh, the man who came up with the plan to have the super ministry mm -hmm. and the man who now runs that super ministry for Peter Dutton. You report a quote of his which says this, this is Mike Bazzullo. The state has to embed itself invisibly into global networks and supply chains and the virtual realm in a seamless and largely invisible fashion. 
intervening on the basis of intelligence and risk settings increasingly over a super scale and very high volumes. To what extent is Mike Bazzullo's vision being brought about now? He's trying very, very hard to bring it about. He originates, he's not just head of the calm head of a department, he originates new legislation such as what's easily called the um, anti-encryption legislation, etc. But I'll just background this, this quote. It comes out of a speech uh, which he gave where he, we should explain that he fancies himself as a, as a um, political philosopher, Buff, and he gave, he referred to a 17th century in the speech English political philosopher, Thomas Hobbes. Hobbes wanted an immensely, sorry, Hobbes wanted an immensely powerful state, which he called the Leviathan, to ward off numerous terror, terrifying threats. In his speech, Pizzolo said that, um, he was certainly, he's very worried about lots and lots of threats, and make sure you lock up your home, and, and you can hire a hitman on the internet and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and in his speech, he said that globalisation meant Hobbes was no longer fit for purpose. Uh, based on the above quote that John read, I have a sneaking suspicion that Hobbes is still his core inspiration. Um, John, did you re get the quotes about the appearance he gave before the parliamentary committee on uh, defending the... The encryption where yeah. he talks did about you magic dust. Yeah. I don't have that oh, handy. Okay. There's another thing which gives you a, a pretty good clue about his respect for the, uh, the traditional idea of having judges issue warrants. Uh, in appearing before a parliamentary committee in 19, this is late 19, two, sorry, 2018, he dealt with concerns that a draconian anti-encryption law could allow a dozen agencies to force high-tech companies to build backdoors ineffectively, they don't like that word, but ineffectively they say backdoors into their systems simply by issuing a notice. Uh, any one of these 12 agencies could issue a notice uh, without a judicial warrant for them to allow these vulnerabilities to be built into their systems, their computer systems. So what he said in answer to the question about uh, what, what are you doing about warrants rather than notices, he said, if we were to say to you that a notice is a warrant and through an inc incantation and the sprinkling of some magic dust, all of a sudden greater oversight would be achieved. He explained this by saying that would be because the Attorney General would be performing the magic ritual. And guess who was making him perform that magic, <laughs> magic uh, ritual? I think the, most people would still prefer that the system in which judges issued the warrants uh, without any voodoo, voodoo rituals is the best way to go. Mm. Can I put, um, the, the, you refer to the national security juggernaut, mm -hmm. um, of which of course Mike Bazzullo is the head, but can I just put to you as a sort of a devil's advocate question the point of view of that juggernaut to get mm -hmm. your response. Essentially, distilling their argument is that the world's now a very dangerous place, uh, mm -hmm. whether it's overseas state actors who want to create cyber attacks, mm -hmm. Islamic terrorists of the sort we saw in, mm -hmm. in Bali or on September 11, white supremacists who we saw, uh, one of them in Christchurch wreak havoc. The dangers are great and that intelligence services these days have to have real-time information and intelligence to head off terrorism attacks. What would you say to, to that argument? Well, they weren't bothering about the white extremist who would, would have been very easy to follow because of all the postings he was doing. Um, I, I don't think... In other uh, words, do you accept the need for intrusive intelligence? 
are nothing like the amount which they're doing with the encryption stuff, nothing like the 75 laws they brought in on terrorism uh, and, and the whole heap of other laws. It is now a crime to do something that harms our relations with another country. And how do you define that? None of these things, they're ill-defined and you know, habeas corpus has been thrown out the door and all that sort of stuff. But I think it's important to remember that we got by with terrorism, terrorists commit murders or uh, try to or conspire to and they, that was covered by laws against murder. And there were something like 134 uh, terrorist acts in Australia before September 11. And you know, people got assassinated, people got blown up, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, in 1977, the uh, Hilton bomb, Hilton, Hilton Hotel, had a bomb explode just outside it, and three three people were killed, 11 injured. Uh, there were 12 foreign leaders there for a conference. What did Malcolm Fraser do? Did he introduce new legislation about terrorism? No. Did he try to wedge the Labor Party over who was softest on terrorism? No, he didn't. It was only after the September 11 thing that we got this avalanche, 75 new laws ostensibly dealing with terrorism. Uh, many of them include other things and let, and let police do you know, use these laws to do similar things. And this laws like the, the espionage laws, which are outrageous, and they've got nothing to do with terrorism. They had to do with uh, massive... Uh, penalties for people who, who can be agents of influence, all that sort of stuff. We've talked about China. I'd like to ask you about Indonesia. Mm -hmm. um, you write that uh, Australia's leaders have let the US control so many critical components of this country's weapons systems that it would not be possible for Australia to defend mm -hmm. itself, for example, in a future conflict with Indonesia against America's wishes. The uh, What happens there with... It's the electronic systems get taken back to America and in secret, to, when, when something goes wrong, which they often do with electronic systems, and they get fixed there, we don't know anything about how to operate these things. Israel won't cop it. It's buying the same fighter planes as we are, the F-35s, and they are building their own systems to try and run it independently of the, if the information is run, it's not run by in relation to the Pentagon, it's run by the company that makes the plane and they, all the data gets sent back there, backwards and forwards, to actually operate the, uh, the plane. I mean, it's, the pilot doesn't have to do anything except rely on this feed of massive you know, computer data. And we can't uh, do any of that. And is it real unrealistic to think that one day... Uh, the United States might back us in a war with Indonesia. It's not. It, you know, at the moment, we've gained enormously from the changes that have occurred in Indonesia, but it mightn't always be that way. Back in 1963, the US point black refused to back us in what looked like, or what was actually a war, a very contained war, uh, against Indonesia, in which we, our troops were in Borneo, were crossing in the, over the border into Indonesia. So you're saying that Australia cannot use its weapons systems in any conflict unless the US gives its go-ahead? Exactly. And as part of that, uh, they will expect in return that we will always go to war with them. Yeah, I think most Australians would have n absolutely no notion of that.
Well, I, I suspect they mightn't care, but uh, <laughs> they would care about the first part, and that is that they'd like their weapon systems to work when they, when they wanted them to. You're right, Brian, that ASIO officers now, today, can legally kidnap people. Mm. Could you explain the case of the University of New South Wales medical student, Izar Al-Haq? Well, what happened there was ASIO kidnapped him, and it went before the Supreme Court of New South Wales, where the judge found, that, not surprisingly, that they had committed a crime, the crime of, of kidnapping, and, however, uh, no-one went ahead with trying to find out <laughs> who was involved and uh, prosecuting them. Instead, what happened, the then head of the Attorney-General's Department uh, referred the judge to the Judicial uh, Misconduct Commission in New South Wales, which fortunately got thrown out. But what did they do? Did they say, dear, I mean, you must never kidnap anyone again? No, they brought in a new law, and that allows ASIO, uh, during what's called a special intelligence uh, operation, to uh, commit criminal offences, provided they're not murder, or very, very serious acts of violence. So that kidnapping might involve much violence, so that'll be all right. And what happens then is anyone working in... It's not just ASIO, it's a series of agents, agencies, and anyone who... Uh, is in there and sees something which is really an abuse of power or complete stuff up and tells the media about it, they are treated immensely seriously in terms of jail time. Uh, the bill was one of the very few acts that was amended on the advice of the monitor, the lawyer who's supposed to monitor the intelligence services, and they did give what is really a token thing for letting uh, uh, lesser penalties for journalists. But journalists... Journalists can't know whether they're breaching the law because if they ring up ASIO and say, is this a special intelligence operation, ASIO is not allowed to tell you. And Since those AFP raids at the ABC, we've been running a series of, of sessions, seminars with our journalists on, on the new tradecraft, what we need to be doing now to try to keep doing what we do. Um, what would be your advice to, you know, the, the young Brian Tuies just starting in journalism who want to keep doing the sort of investigative journalism which you've made so well, famous. I wouldn't bother about encryption and all of those things because they can, they can do all of that. I don't know. Uh, there's no use meeting someone in a car park or what, whatever happened in the Watergate stuff. Mm. I, I, I don't know. It's just dreadful. What has to happen is the laws have to change mm. and where it must support whistleblowers and there must be... See, what's happened is in 1980, the High Court ruled that in these sort of cases there is a balance must be struck between the right of the public to know and the right of governments to keep some things secret. And none of these laws have anything approximating that sort of balance. And in many cases, the onus of proof is on the defence to prove they didn't commit a crime. And... That, the laws need to be completely and utterly changed. And you know, one of the most disappointing things is that uh, Labor has not stood up for any of their traditional values. And unfortunately, most of the Liberal Party people who uh, revere Menzies uh, forget that Menzies actually took a, a traditional British liberal law approach to these things. His Attorney General presented Cabinet with a new, uh, a completely new, a law against espionage, draconian, means he's threw the lot out. There was no amending it, no nonsense. Well, those days have long gone and partly gone because of what's happened since then. Hawke, 
to his discredit, introduced uh, a law which made it a criminal offence to name anyone working for ASIO. That's the first step towards a police state. Second step was taken by Howard, who said that uh, you that if you do so, the next step would be that uh, ASIO would be allowed to detain and question people, uh, and it'll be a, a, if you come out and you tell anyone what happened or what you said, you go to jail, and anyone reporter can't report it, etc., etc. Now that is just pure mm. police state activity, having people. People who, uh, I've left out the most important thing here, the people who are detained and not suspected of committing any crime. Mm. So, uh, you know, where is habeas corpus in all of this? Well, I'm sure there's some people who would like to ask a question of Brian, so please, um, let's go. I think there's a microphone coming to you. Brian, given the, the current situation in New South Wales and parts of Australia of drought and bushfires, given the... Uh, uh, government's attitude that this is all a bunch of crap about climate change, and in fact they're behaving that way. Why has the media been relatively quiet on this and not taken the government to account for what's going on? So, sorry, on what? On climate change, or well, they've taken the government to more account on climate change than they have on any of these laws. The core thing is, if I miss. I might have misread it, but Labor's not standing up at the moment in the Parliament on climate change. You know, uh, Dennis Doherty, the anti-basis campaign. Um, I'm particularly interested in Kim Beasley. He seems to have had a charmed life. He um, he went from being uh, the opposition leader to uh, running big arms companies in Australia, then being the ambassador, and now he's the governor of uh, uh, Western Australia, and yet. All through the 80s, he was lying about what Pine Gap was doing and so on. I just wondered if you might expand on Kim Beasley and his role in keeping the secrets and, and persuading the Australian people that uh, Pine Gap and the US alliance was the uh, best thing since sliced bread. Um, what he also did was implement uh, a policy actually announced by the Whitlam government, and that was to have... Australia's defence to be based on the defence of Australia. That didn't mean that you waited till people got here, but it meant that you focused on, on equipment and training to prevent anyone coming through an attack through or from the island chain to our north. And he abandoned all, and he implemented that while he was defence minister, but he abandoned it all subsequently. It's now totally that we should go to any war that the United States wants us to go who and that Pine Gap, fortunately, is collecting information in the Middle East, et cetera, et cetera, for targeting different people, and he thinks that's wonderful. Uh, and I don't know why this is, but as governor, he had to leave the board of Lockheed Martin, which makes the F-35, he wasn't running it in Australia, but uh, he was on the board, of uh, the Australian board. That's just a thing to uh, pat him on the back. Uh, he had to resign that when he became governor of Western Australia. But however, has somehow or other got a grant from the Western Australian government to continue to be actively involved in defence matters to try and get more defence industry to Western Australia. But, uh, Is there a question up the back? Hi, I'm just wondering what your views are about the uh, attempted prosecution or persecution of Julian Assange. I, I think that Julian Assange is a, 
Australian citizen and the Australian government should do everything to try and protect his interests because uh, he has done a, a wonderful job. The, this, the information leaked by WikiLeaks is tremendously important. It's thrown throw a lot of light on what's happening, what's happening in a, particularly in American foreign policy. Uh, no one was killed, and if they were, we should bear in mind that that responsibility was with, with the Pentagon because they did not code word any of the people mentioned in these in these cables. It's up to them to do that. It's, it's standard practice. Um, I think he's rivalled by Snowden, Edward Snowden's revelations about the National Security Agency. But certainly I think uh, governments in Australia should actively defend him. Uh, thank you so much for actually producing this book. Um, the question I'd like to ask you is what is it about Conservative government, because I'm going to ignore Labor because they're irrelevant, frankly, at the moment. But what it is about the Conservative government we've seen since Howard, which seemed to make them enthrall to these intelligence agencies? Is there something about their own authoritarian temper that they support everything they want to do? Or is it that they, in fact, really don't understand the, the legislation and the powers that they're actually giving to these agencies? Why are we faced with such an authoritarian regime and an increasing authoritarian government in what's a law-abiding society? Um. I'm, I'm puzzled by this because it wasn't always like this. I don't think any intelligence agencies manipulated Malcolm Fraser when he was uh, uh, Prime Minister. Um, certainly not Menzies. Uh, I, what, what I think here is what's happened here is that now the combination, well, mainly the intelligence agencies, which have grown immensely, are actually formulating Australian foreign policy and Australian defence policy which is completely intolerable in a democratic system. Um, and I don't know how exactly it's happened. Otherwise, other than that, look, quite a lot of ministers get appointed to these areas, like defence, uh, who know nothing at all about it. And the easiest thing to do is just tick off everything that's wanted. And uh, that's, uh, that, that is a big change. There have been people who are ministers on both sides of politics in the past who really knew a lot about their portfolio. And they're not helped by the most of the media reporting in this, in this country. I've, I've never seen anything like some of the reporting by a journalist who has now joined the Defence Minister as Press Secretary. He wrote with no evidence whatsoever uh, that Vanuatu was going to let the uh, Chinese Navy visit a port there. Well, of course they could have, but of course there was this port was suited especially to Chinese Navy ships. Well, in fact, it was built to, do, to handle t uh, big cruise ships, which are much bigger than most naval ships, except aircraft carriers. And he, he wrote the story, despite it being denied before he put it in the paper, by the foreign minister and by the prime minister. And there's no evidence that it's remotely true. The only people outsiders who are building ports or whatever, as Australia is taking over in conjunction with the US, the, the port uh, at, uh, in New Guinea on Manus Island. Uh, Brian, courageous work you have been doing. Have you ever felt that you might be in any personal danger? Uh, I, I don't think so, no. 
Uh, look, in the, in the past, of course, I've been taken to court and that sort of thing, but that's rather different than being in any sort of danger. Um, no. Brian, it's my impression as a non-specialist at the moment that the, um, there's a mass massive fight going on in Canberra um, between the security forces and others about um, our, our relationship with China and whether we should treat it as, a, as a, an enemy that we're not actually fighting at the moment, but that it is an enemy. Um, and um, Hugh White, you probably saw, had the column in the uh, inside back page of The Fin this morning, arguing essentially the line that you're arguing. So what's your assessment? Um, is there actually a debate going on there in Canberra at the moment? And what's the alignment of forces, the institutional alignment of forces? And um, what, what are the trends in that fight? How's it going? Uh, that uh, fight is over and the security service, intelligence service have won it easily. The head of the Foreign Affairs Department is a holdout on it. Uh, Morrison's saying things at the moment that looks like he's trying to balance the advantages to us. I mean, this is not money-grubbing to think that so many Australian jobs depend upon trade with China and even if the Chinese economy slows, etc., etc., there will be something like, in not that far away, 800 million people in their middle class wanting to buy goods from Australia. A similar thing will be happening in India and so forth. Um, there is no evidence at all that China has any intention of invading Australia. It makes no sense. Previous defence uh, heads of defence have explained that. It's much cheaper to buy whatever you want on the open market than try to invade. Invading Australia is not easy. People don't understand that. And Australians are unnecessarily scared. They are, well, Australia is one of the safest countries on earth. It is not surrounded by enemies. It's not uh, who've been enemies for hundreds of years. Uh, now, I, this should never have happened. Uh, the, the intelligence agencies are there to, to give some analysis, but now uh, there's one of them, a new one, which used to be called Office of National Assessments, now got hundreds of people working for it, all you know, throwing up this sort of anti-China um, propaganda, really. It's not intelligence analyst stuff. In the past, the, the organisation called the Joint Intelligence Agency, now organisation, I should say, is now called the Defence Intelligence Organisation. Organisation. It did outstandingly good work, but I think that's, I don't know much what's happened to it. Um, but it's no question, and it's a very dangerous thing that's happened, is the, sort of this, the Chinese have no influence. No one can give me a single example of where the Chinese influenced Australian government policy in any undue way. It may influence you know, some of their own citizens or ex-citizens here unduly, but it's not in any way shown ever that it's had any influence over Australian government policy. The Americans have constant, repeated and deep influence over our policy. Brian, I notice you haven't mentioned the D word tonight. I don't think you have. In your view, is Dutton running Pesulo? Is Pesulo running Dutton or are they just good friends? is uh, running Dutto, Dutton. in relationship to US intervention in Australian affairs, could you offer an opinion on the uh, removal of Rudd and the adoption of 
of uh, or the appointment of Gillard and then the full embrace of the Obama's pivot to Asia? Where it was announced in the Australian uh, Parliament uh, and the, the Australian Parliament was convened in order to um, put for, to, to adopt that policy of the pivot to Asia? I, I am not sure that Rudd would have opposed it. I mean, he's saying things now, but I'm, I am not sure. I don't know. Um, I do know this, that uh, Gillard and the uh, Defence uh, Minister, Stephen Smith, met uh, in Perth before the Parliament sat, where they discussed uh, what the US wanted uh, here, like the, the build-up of, of the Darwin Marine base, etc., etc. And I know someone who subsequently wasn't there, but subsequently read the record of conversation of that meeting, and he was stunned that at no stage did Gillard say, well, look, uh, we need to examine this some more before we make a decision on it. She just went, tick, you can have it. They didn't even mention things like the status of forces agreement for the Marines in Darwin. And you always have a trouble there if the Americans say their law will apply even though someone commits murder here or rapes someone here. And none of that crossed her mind. And uh, I don't know uh, about Rudd. There were different views about how tough he would have been. I just don't know. We have time for one more question, if there's one in the audience. There's always been this... Uh, fear of abandonment used as the propaganda for us being the way we are with America. Can you see a future if we abandoned uh, it were, or were abandoned by America? No, it's... Well, I don't see why America would want to ab abandon us. They've got lots and lots of wonderful assets here. Um, the uh, If we abandoned America, if we were kicked out of the ANSYS Treaty like New Zealand was, uh, we would probably thrive. It's the best thing that have happened in New Zealand. I, w I would only stay in the ANSYS Treaty because I particularly admire Article 1, which says you must never engage in international aggression. And that's the only one that matters. Brian, I remember, I think, this is correct, that um, back in the National Times days when uh, you published a whole lot of secret documents, uh, you were issued with some sort of summons to hand them all back. Um, but sadly that they weren't available. Uh, can you think of circumstances, what do you think about journalists who've got possession of secret information um, being prepared to hand it back over to the government? Could you make a comment on that? I suppose you're uh, referring to John's employer here. <laughs> but, uh, I know, uh, uh, well, uh, it depends whether you can, whether you've destroyed them in the name of security before you... Uh, before they get to you or not, uh, you'd have to work out what your chances of winning that argument was. I was in a high court case where I couldn't believe the Chief Justice gave me an order to hand over all uh, documents that I, I classified or not that I had relating to intelligence matters, foreign affairs or defence going back an unlimited time. Well, I had some documents from 1948, etc. But uh, uh, So I point blank refused and nothing happened to me. In fact, <laughs> he, he was no longer on the case. When it resumed, another judge took it over. He didn't mention any of this. Uh, I thought the case would have to go on for a bit. He said, no, no, the case is uh, going to be settled now. We're not going on with it. 
Uh, and he never mentioned the Chief Justice either. But <laughs> sort of. Well, thank you, everybody. And as Brian said, he won't be in a selfie, but he, um, he is happy to sign books at the back there. Um, so thank you all, and, and please thank Brian Tui. Thanks for listening to another Gleebooks Author Talk, brought to you by Gleebooks in collaboration with 2SER. If you'd like to be a part of the action next time, please visit gleebooks.com.au slash bookings. We'd love to see you there.